The following episode of the Nick podcast contains explicit language and spoilers. We highly recommend you watch the corresponding episode before listening. Hey everyone, welcome to the final installment of the Nick Podcast. I'm Michael Begler. And I'm Jack Amiel. And we are the co-creators and writers of the show. Each week we take you behind the scenes with various cast and crew for in-depth discussion on what it takes to make each episode. Today we've reached the end, episode 10, the finale. We'll be discussing all the ups and downs, and helping us out with that once again is our semi-regular co-host, Michael Angarano, but everyone calls him Bertie. Yes, hello, thank you for having me. For the last time. For the last time. And joining us for this final talk, we are very pleased to have with us the gifted and talented surgeon Algernon Edwards, played by the gifted and talented actor, Mr. Andre Holland. But before we bring Andre on, let's do a little recapping. Uh, we can start at the end with the surgery. To me, of all the surgeries in two seasons, this one was by far the hardest to watch. But once again, it is based on a real doctor, Evan O'Neill Kane. And Jack, I know that you could probably talk a little more about him. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't a young man when he did this. He was in his 70s, actually, and he did it twice. The first time uh, he did, uh, essentially, I think he did appendectomy on himself. And it was to show exactly what Thackeray is showing, which is that things can be done with a general anesthesia. I mean, excuse me, a local anesthesia rather than a general anesthesia. Um, because remember, general anesthesia was still very, very dangerous back then. And actually, Evan O'Neill Cain was uh, about a decade or so later than Thackeray. And he was trying to prove that using locals was a viable way to do surgeries. And the first time he did it, he had very good success, and he joked and laughed and was doing very well and sewed himself up. The second time, it's debatable about how well he did it. I think he did a hernia operation or something. Yeah, the first one was appendectomy. The second one was hernia. And he did the hernia operation, and there are reports that he basically was never the same afterwards and that he never really recovered. Well, I think he was like in his 70s at that point. I think he was like 72 years old yeah. or something. And so we saw that. And there's some wonderful pictures on the web of uh, of Evan O'Neill Kane doing this. And it's crazy. And it's exactly how Thackeray did and, it. And it's actually, we saw it, we saw it when we were shooting first season. Like We knew very early on that we were going to build to this uh, at some at some point. It was just too good. And it's also, I mean, it's it shows you the hubris of surgeons too. I mean, this this thing of what can I do? How can I push the boundaries? What? Yeah, and then there's no one else but Thackeray who would do that, you know, in in our world. And and it was really the ultimate ultimate moment. I mean, the question I think everybody's sort of asking, and I, and I don't blame them, is is this suicide or is this accident or is this what? And I think I, I would rather leave it up to people's interpretation of what they think Thackeray would have done or, or did do. My peripheral vision seems to be dying a bit. Almost a, a vibration at the edges. Body temperature's begun to drop. This is it. This is all we are. His last words, this is all we are, which mm. is the name of the episode, Clive came up with that. Right. And I think that that's, that's, that's really great that the, his, his final words are his own. One of the things that I, I love about that scene is, and it's something that, that Soderbergh actually said really, really early. He talked about this idea of, in terms of telling stories, that there's somebody with 
who's in jail, and he's trying to get the key that's hanging on the ring just out of his reach through the jail cell mm-hmm. door. And he's trying to reach and trying to reach, and he finally gets the key ring. And he's like, my God, I got it. And he puts it in the lock, and it's the wrong key. Right. And it's this wonderful story thing that reminded me when we were doing the ending and Birdie running and getting the, the, adrenaline. the adrenaline. That moment. By the way, you're a wonderful runner. You looked good. You can look bad running. I, by the way, I was so sore for that week <laughs> running in those pants and, and those and the shoes. shoes. The shoes really fucked me up. On that man. floor, yeah. yeah. You but, were like the, the coyote in, in Roadrunner. Yeah. <laughs> you just skidded right across. Yeah, you're like my dog on like a like a on like a slippery floor, just like his legs <laughs> just, just right. moving and he's not. But um going and getting that and plunging it because you've seen it in pulp fiction, you've seen it in everything. And one of the things you learned very quickly is that epinephrine really adrenaline doesn't really do that. And what I loved about it was that we had set this adrenaline thing up the entire season yeah. and people were gonna be like, they're gonna save our hero and it doesn't. And that, to me, is really kind of wonderful. What I loved about it was that it's so unexpected. And it's it's the Thackeray's trajectory is so unpredictable this season because he really does go through a lot of ups and downs. It's not an arc. It's it's really it's volatile. And it's Mm -hmm. it's where it where it ends is is so sad because you don't really um, you, you realize he's a guy who doesn't really have any other options. Mm-hmm. You know, it's where we kind of met Christensen in the first episode. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so it's uh, it's sad. And it's very cinematic the way Clive is doing the surgery and everybody's standing ground and watching him and listening to him and kind of all watching speechless. But though, that was probably the hardest thing for me to shoot because Interesting. to not to be so <laughs> inactive and to just be paralyzed. Right. You know, we're standing here. And we could save him, but he we're just we're just kind of in awe watching him and falling in line. I mean, he is your chief, and you, yeah, exactly. It's like you still have to follow that right. yeah. that lead. The the twenty seconds that we have when this when he when Thackeray like passes out, and we all try to resuscitate him. There's something kind of disturbing about the fact that we've you've seen those surgeons do that many times on the show, but the fact that it's Thackeray that we're sticking right. the tube down <clears throat> and trying to get his legs up, you know that 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 was. That was very strange. That was strange to shoot. Yeah. Let's move on to a, a happier note. We did have Harriet accepting Cleary's proposal, but I don't think it would be our show if it didn't have some dark twist to it. <laughs> and actually, Sully or Chris Sullivan couldn't be here today, but he did want to say a few words about his big confession scene, which he actually pre-recorded. So let's take a listen. So the confession scene. I had been looking forward to this scene uh, all season. We had been working on it. Jack and Michael and I had been meeting, talking about it, talking about how it would all go down, what would be said, how it was said, all these things. And finally, the day came. And so we pulled up to this church in uh, Harlem. We walk in, and they had built a custom confessional booth for the scene. And it was small, but they were uh, they were figuring things out. They were getting things set up, and myself and uh, the actor playing the priest uh, were sitting, rehearsing our lines, going over it, getting a flow. And then it comes time to shoot. Stephen asked me to step in, and I kneel down on my side of the booth, and it's it's so small that my feet are literally sticking out from the curtain. And then Stephen's trying to figure out where to put the camera, and there are some conversations being had, and then Stephen out of nowhere, just tells everyone to stop working. He just goes, stop, stop, stop working, stop working. He walks over to uh, Greg Jacobs, his first AD, and you see him whisper something. And nobody's quite sure what's happening. But he has everyone clear the area, 
And then he sets up the camera and points it at the booth and just rolls for 30 seconds. And then he moves the camera and he does it again. And then he moves the camera and he does it again. And he moves the camera and he does it again. And as he's doing this, everyone in the room is slowly realizing what he's doing, that he's never going to shoot the inside of this thing. He couldn't figure out how to get the camera in anyways. They were going to cut a hole in it, all these things. But then he just said, well, never mind. And so he changed his plan. And one of the things that made him change his plan, apparently, is that he had seen my feet sticking out the back. So he then did four or five setups on my feet, as, uh, as, you, as you saw in the scene. And then that was it. This big scene that I had been working on that Jack and Michael had been working on that I was kind of stressed out about. I never, <laughs> I never even ended up on camera. And uh, as, as Michael Angarano pointed out a few episodes ago, that's what we call getting Soderbergh. But no, you can't, you can't complain because it's such a good idea. It's such a good idea. And so at the end of all of his setups, where it was just without sound, shooting my feet, shooting the booth, we went inside and we did one take of the audio of the scene and they just recorded audio and he matched it up with his edit and man it turned out good you set her up told the copper i knew what she was up to and he set a trap for her. and i knew the church wouldn't look too kindly on it and you didn't took away her habit her name banished her Left her with nothing and nobody except me. You manipulated a nun's excommunication. Ah, she was a fucking abortionist! The thing, um, and Michael Begler was the one who came up with this idea that, and he came up with it really at the very, very, very beginning of the writing of season two, is yes. that is this idea that, that Cleary set this up. And I, and I was just... I was over the moon over it because I thought it was a fantastic way. And, and then we, so we built the season really around that. I, I always know when Jack likes something of mine because he has, he always says the same thing. He goes, interesting. <laughs> and that's when I know I've got Jack. Yeah. <laughs> interesting. Um, it's weird. I'm effusive about like, you know, almost everything. Oh my God, a bottle of water. That's awesome. And then when Michael has something that's great, it's like, it just stops you in your tracks because I'm now spinning on all the ways we can lead into it and lead out of it and play with it. And, and it's, you know, to me that was fascinating to set that up over an entire season. And just like where we talked about Clive coming up with the last line, what's so wonderful for me about that moment is when we shot her saying yes to the proposal and just the ring on her finger, we had an ending and there were some lines and it was sort of this kind of moment and it didn't fit he went over, hugged her, they kissed. Like, I think that was her original and ending. Yeah, and Stephen just was like, okay, you're, what do you guys want to do? And Sully and Kara sort of just improvised it. They just tried to figure out what their characters would do, and they stayed in their character. And she giggled, and he laughed, and they were uncomfortable. And then Sully just reached across the table, and she took his hand. And then, you know, the moment they broke it, and they were just sort of like... And they went, they just started eating breakfast. Yeah. And it was perfect. It's something that you know we, we could have written and put it's, on the page, but it never would have sold. Probably the most satisfying ending to any of the storylines, really. I mean, not that all the other storylines aren't wrapped up so nice with a bow, but you're watching these people interact for two seasons, and you're just waiting for a moment like this. And the fact that it plays out in silence is... It's extremely tender. Yeah. Yeah, and I think they're beyond words. You know, they started with words. They started with 
nasty lines back and forth, it, you know, banter. And in the end, they didn't need to say anything to each other because mm-hmm. they connected in a way. I, the I, silence I, was the most eloquent thing. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I will admit, I get a little teary-eyed when I see that scene. Yeah, it's a great scene. The other gigantic thing that happened, among other things, is the scene between Cornelia and Henry when Cornelia finds out the truth of her beloved brother. It was you who led all those sick passengers into the country. You who brought the plague here and to San Francisco. You who killed Spate. Really? You who murdered your own father and tried to kill me? Say something. It's a shame you're not a man. You'd have been named lead detective in the city by now. How could you? How could I not? I'm hoping everyone was surprised. I'm hoping nobody saw it coming. I'm sure on the web we're going to get lots of people going, oh, I saw that. I knew it was him. He's blonde. We hate blonde people. You know, whatever. You know, there's always some somebody who thinks that they're ahead of it. And if they are, great. But we set up enough MacGuffins, we hope, you know, of, of was it Captain Robertson? Was it Barrow? Was it Lucy who saw Henry's father as an impediment to them being together? Was it Bertie? I asked myself that. For a second, I was reading, and I was like, I think this is going to go in a crazy direction here. Well, you're responsible for, for Thackeray It dying. was Genevieve. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we really we aimed the season at that. And what I think we tried to do is to drop in these little moments of, you know, where it was incredibly plausible. There's a guy who is skimming money from his dad to pay for the subway thing, and he is... You know, and he is very worried about his father's, you know, how his father's running his business. And he's certainly trying to wrest it away from him. But at the same time, he's the progressive. Mm -hmm. He's the good guy. He's the one who's, you know, how can he be bad? Because he likes... championing Algernon. He's championing Algernon. And so the whole point was that, you know, okay, kind of, so he's a scoundrel. But, I mean, you know, he's sort of, you think he's kind of like a little bit of a 'er ne'er-do-well rich kid. And Mm -hmm. when you realize that there's this other thing behind it and you realize that all of the facts of the season do point to it. Yeah. You know, I think it's very satisfying, and I hope the audience feels the same way and doesn't doesn't feel cheated, and they feel like we 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 earned that moment. So a lot of ups and downs uh, in this episode, but at least we end on a somewhat hopeful note. Uh, Algernon is going to pick up where Thackeray left off in his addiction studies and continue down the road of uh, the beginnings of analysis. Well, the man who spoke the final words is here with us, Andre Holland. Uh, welcome, Andre, to the podcast. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me, guys. I, so I would like to start really at your start, your childhood, because I know that in ways there are shades of Algernon in it, you know, specifically where you grew up and went to school. Would, would you mind talking about that? Sure, not at all. So I'm from a, a small town in Alabama called Shades Valley, Alabama, which is just outside of a slightly larger town called Bessemer, Alabama, which probably nobody's ever heard of. Um, yes, uh, I have, because uh, Bessemer... You would know Henry Bessemer, Bessemer steel was, man. Was the, was the man who figured out how to make steel in 15 minutes, right. not two weeks, and that's what made Carnegie his fortune. <laughs> Jack, I was wondering how you do so well with the ladies. Clearly, it's, it's uh, <laughs> your knowledge of steel. Let me tell you, uh, let me tell you about smelting, ladies. <laughs> it's a great pickup well line. Done. Do you I know like, Bessemer? <laughs> so I was hanging out by a cauldron the other day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, so so the town I grew up in, and, and, and Bessemer is just outside of Birmingham. So the town I grew up in was was um, quite complicated. I mean, Birmingham has a has a pretty uh, complicated history. Um, the school that I was sent to at quite a young age was was one that was uh, over the mountain, as we called it, which was a predominantly white school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was one of two uh, students of color at that school, and so uh, 
living in that sort of in-between place of, you know, growing up in a neighborhood that's all black, very working class, and then being sent to the school that's the complete opposite of that. I think I had a, a little bit of, of uh, experience with what Algernon's going through in terms of sort of straddling these these two different worlds. So it definitely helped, yeah. And, you know, we talk uh, a bit, and you, it's funny, we had, Michael and I had been working on season two when you were on stage with us at the Television Critics Association, and you discussed double consciousness. And we hadn't discussed with you the fact that we were going to bring in W.E.B. Du Bois, and we were going to bring in all of these thinkers of the day who talk about double consciousness. And it was it aligned perfectly, really, with everything that Michael and I were trying to say about the great thinkers of this era. We were so in sync, and we... And you didn't know that we were already doing that. Yeah, it was, I mean, again, man, it, you know, life imitating art, it was It was kind of an amazing moment because you're right, like that, that idea of double consciousness, sort of living, African-American people who have to live in these two different worlds and developing two different ways of, of behaving and of speaking and, and of living, and then what the cost of that is, like what that does to a person uh, emotionally was some, is something that I've always been interested in. And then, so of course, when I picked up the script and read it, I was like, who, who are these guys who are <laughs> writing the story not only of my life, but of, of the lives of so many people who I know? So it was, it was kind of perfect, man. And that all the way up through the first season and then and, and then up to the last the last episode you know you guys did such a wonderful job of inviting me into that to that dialogue and and uh, listening to what my ideas were which is not something you had to do so i really appreciate that and i think that um together we did come up with something that's pretty sort of layered and complicated and, and interesting i mean one of the wonderful things about when you work with your actors is your actors ask themselves questions that the writers already should have been asking themselves and 99 percent of the time we do but Often, often we're thinking of it from a writing point of view and an actor is saying, well, what's my motivation in this moment? What's going on here? What's going there? And often when an actor turns to us and says, I'm not exactly sure, we know you guys have done your homework. We know you have a technique. You have a, you have a craft. And that if, if it's not making sense to you, it's on us to go, you're right. We're not there yet. We, we, this isn't fully realized. And we really did rewrite a pretty much the entire Opal storyline with you because we wanted we wanted to get it right and I think that we we hadn't done it yet did you feel did you feel more connected to it once we had sort of worked through all that well it's a little late now if you didn't <laughs> <laughs> no it uh absolutely man and again first of all when I read it the first time it, I didn't feel like it was it was really sort of far away but I just there were some questions that I had so I, again I applaud you guys for listening to my input and I definitely think that what we came up with is maybe a few steps ahead of where we were where we started and it, it, it's an interesting thing because I obviously feel really connected to this character and want to make sure that I take care of him and, and also I think being the sort of one main characters african-american on the show i do feel a responsibility to make sure that that i do get it right mm -hmm. do you know what i mean sure um, especially in light of of you know where we are as a country and right. all that's going on in the world today i want to make sure that we're putting images out there that that are on the right side of of that discussion um, certainly not to say that you know we can't take artistic liberties and do what we want to do but there is a responsibility that i feel so I do think that what we came up with was uh, was a couple with Algernon and Opal who are who are really a a power couple who come to be a power couple, you know, who who have strong points of view, but you can by the end of it understand why they maybe were attracted to each other in the first place. And and I think there's even hints of like 
where they might be able to go you know in in the future so i and i really i really love that about them remember that conversation we were having about like you know the stereotypes that we all are kind of forced to play and how how nice it is to to play a character that's actually multi-layered and Algernon's not just a hero or a, a spokesperson or a brilliant doctor or Birdie's not just the nice guy or Thackeray's not just the uh, the drug addict kind of rock star, but they're mm-hmm. actually layered, flawed characters. I mean, one one of my favorite things about Algernon is that, yeah, he is the African-American doctor in the hospital, but he's also incredibly flawed. And throughout season one and throughout season two, you see him, you know, navigate these moral dilemmas that he's kind of forced with. And I just love watching Andre perform them so much because... There's a constant duplicitousness mm-hmm. in, to his character constantly where he's in a scene and he's talking to somebody and you know that whatever the character's talking about, there's something else going on in Algernon's eyes. There's so many scenes, Andre, that you played and you're completely silent for a lot of the scene, but it's just the look in your eyes and the, the expression on your face that says everything you need to say. And and Soderbergh films it that way, too. Like right. I remember, There's so many instances that the camera finds Andre's face. Well, I feel like that Soderbergh sort of caught on to that very early in, yeah. in, in Andre's performance, that he could tell. And I mean, I, I, as you're speaking, I'm flashing on just things like... The first time you meet Hobart. Right. Ecuador, I uh, hear the jungles down there can be quite treacherous. I don't believe it. The natives are like children, docile, obedient, and they work for wages so small that even August here couldn't quarrel with it. <laughs> uh, free labor can certainly change the equation. History has shown us that. It built the pyramids, among other things. Now, Hobart was saying that... It, there's a look on your face that... It, it's... Because you're, you're standing there, and and I, I, I maybe one of my three or four favorite moments yeah. in the entire series. And it, it, it also makes it so, so pertinent when your emotions get to the surface because like in season one, episode six, where like Thackeray confronts you, it comes a lot in your scenes with Thackeray where it kind of comes to the surface and, and you're forced to like speak your emotions and you finally hear your voice like raise a little bit and you're not as composed anymore. I just... I don't really know what I'm saying, but I just love watching you <laughs> all season because keep going, man. I love what you said. It sounds good. It makes me it makes me feel feel warm. But and you know, the scene like in a, I think it's episode one or something this season where it's the opening of the new Nick. It's uh, the one, the shovel, the sh- with the shovel and the look on your face when oh, Philip yeah. and Cornelia are right in front of you kissing. It's just so <laughs> so heartbreaking. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that, guys. I think you know some of it. I think is acting, but I think also you, you know. I, Again, like where I grew up, man, I, if I could tell you a quick story that came to mind as you guys were talking, I have a younger sister, Natalie, who is an incredible golfer, right? So when she was in high school, she used to go around and play these golf tournaments in Alabama, and they were also over the mountain. She would always be the only little black girl playing at these golf courses. And I remember going to this one course one day in a, in a town called Coleman, which is in Alabama, which is uh, notoriously, notoriously racist. She was playing at this country club, and in order to register for the tournaments, you had to write down your name and what country club you belonged to. And we obviously didn't belong to a country club. And so I remember going there with my sister, and, and I was her caddy that day. And on the first tee box, they get out and they announce, oh, here's uh, so-and-so from River Chase Country Club, and next on the tee box, we have so-and-so from Shades Valley Country Club or whatever. And then my sister's turn came, and they said, and uh, last on the tee box, we have Natalie Holland from Bessemer. And the look on her face 
devastated me. That mix of sort of shame mm-hmm. and fear. Mm-hmm. She swallowed all of that down. She put her, gra- her ball in the ground. She stepped up there and hit the most beautiful drive you've ever seen right down the middle of the fairway. So anything that, I, that I'm able to play, I think, on, in this show is stuff that I've borrowed from her and from other people in my family because I've, I've been witness to a lot of beautiful things. I would want to know if there were certain scenes that were particularly difficult to play with all this emotion that you bring to the character. There were there ones that where you kind of went home and you couldn't shake it like, because so much was behind it. You know, basically the whole first season. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I yeah, there was yeah. there was a real, and I'm not even saying this. Like there was a notice, a noticeable weight on Andre's shoulders. It, it for sure, man. That whole first season, you know, dealing with all the, the the fighting and the swallowing down of all of those things that you that the character wanted to be able to say, the physical life. You know, I didn't want to do anything that was too that drew too much attention physically, but at the same time, you know. I think that the circumstances of our lives do sort of affect how we live in our bodies, you know? Mm -hmm. And I always imagine Algernon as being almost like stuck between two sheets of ice, just cramped, like he just can't get out. Um, And and that, you know, I I also found myself sometimes on the subway on the way home, like looking at people in a different way or little little injustices or little things that that, uh, I normally am able to kind of brush off, they really affected me and got to me. Uh, which was a really kind of interesting experience. Did that go on on the set? And what I mean by that is, look, the set is white. You know, you're playing you're <laughs> playing the black doctor in the white hospital, but you're surrounded, in even on the set, as the one of the only black people on the set. Unless it's like if Zara was in the scene too. But does that does that affect your performance? I mean, I, I'm really curious about that because do you, is that like. Do you know what I'm saying? And it's also two white guys writing exactly. writing your dialogue. Right, right. Three white guys writing your dialogue. <laughs> right, but it's... yeah. Man, I can't. I thank you guys for asking that. It, it, yeah, for sure. I remember the first season, the very first time we were in the surgical theater when I the operation one night with the with the silver wire. Uh-huh. I remember standing there and looking out at the at the crowd, and seeing all the white faces, <laughs> and looking at the cast and the crew, and and that like I was really honestly terrified. Like, as an actor to do it, you know, it really made me feel afraid and isolated. And I thought, well, this is probably exactly what it was like for Algernon. Right. So, you know, um, it's just so funny how these things have, this character in my own life have, have intersected. In terms of, like, you know, two white guys writing the dialogue, <laughs> uh, you guys do a great job, by the way. <laughs> but there, there, there is always, like, a, you know, it is a strange feeling. And it's a feeling that, I wish everybody got to experience at least once, mm-hmm. right? Being in a position where a lot is expected of you and you look around and there's not really anybody who looks like you. Just the the weight of that, you know, it really can be crippling. And and it has been in other times in my life. But I think that I've found a way to sort of to bend it, you know, and use it. I, I kind of think of it as like my, my superpower. Being able to take that feeling of like anxiety and fear and, and worry and, and doubt right. and shame, you know, it's all of that. All of that stuff is in there. Take it and like find a place to put it, you know, mm-hmm. which is why I'm so so passionate about the story being clear and the character's point of view being clear, because I need to know exactly where I can put all of that stuff. Because if I'm in a situation where I don't know exactly what I'm doing and I feel like I'm forced to stand there and just feel what I'm feeling, 
that, that <laughs> that's where it gets a little dangerous. What's the biggest takeaway f- for you from this character, you think? The biggest thing you've sort of learned from playing this role? Good question, man. I think I'm, I'm maybe still learning it, but w- one of the things I'm learning, you know, we talked a lot about the end of the season, mm-hmm. at the end of season two, how we wanted to leave the character. And I sort of came into it, to be perfectly honest with you, I came into it hoping that we would leave him on a on a note where he was in charge and he was capable and he was sort of living up to his his potential, which of course I think you guys rightly said, well, you know, we can look at history and see that things aren't really they can't really get that much better for him right now, right? Right. So I think that was that was spot on. What I what I'm taking away from the character is, you know, at the end of the season, he's in a spot where he's having he's forced to basically make a right turn and learn something entirely new. For me. As an actor, I think I'm in a similar place where all I've done really for the past 12, 13, 13 years now is, uh, is, is study acting and, and, and acting. What I'm learning in my career now is that in order for me to do the things that, that I hope to do, I have to learn something new, right? right? I have to learn how to produce. I have to learn how to be more proactive, to really go after the things that I want in a, in a more front-footed way, and that that's okay. And that there's there's power in that, and and that I'm I'm actually prepared for that, and I think Algernon is prepared for that. All of the stuff that he went through in season one, all the stuff that he went through prior to season one, I think, has prepared him for the moment that he's in at the end of season two. Although he didn't see it coming, mm-hmm. and I think that I think that I'm in a similar place. I'm learning to have more faith in myself, and and I think I've learned that from from playing this character. The thing about you and your performance, it got has gotten so much well-deserved praise. And um, I, I I don't think probably it gets any better than from a certain commander-in-chief. And I was <laughs> wondering if you would grace us with the amazing story of your experience at the White House, because I think oh, everybody boy. would love to hear that story. So we were invited to the... I was in Selma, and so when the, the film came out, we were invited to the White House to do a, a screening. Uh, which was an amazing experience. So we all got there and and um, were you know brought into a, a bit of a holding room and we were told that uh, president would arrive in five minutes. And then uh, the staffer came back around and said two minutes and counting, ninety seconds, sixty seconds, and now. <laughs> and around the corner comes uh, the smoothest, coolest brother in the world. I mean, just like. And with his gorgeous wife. Anyway, it was amazing. <laughs> they walk in. So then when, when it came my turn to go up and take a picture, I was nervous as hell. And uh, somehow my feet managed to, to move towards them. And uh, I, I approached, and the first thing he said was, uh, you know, got to <laughs> tell you, I uh, got to tell you, I've really, really been enjoying the Nick. I was like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, it's a great character. You uh, you guys do a great job, and uh, I've been telling I've been telling Michelle, you know that you know that uh, you know that show I was telling you about, the one uh, the Nick, and she goes, oh yeah, the one with the with the doctors. He's like, yeah yeah, well he plays a doctor, he plays a, a Algernon on the show, and uh, he does a great job. <laughs> anyway, he just went on and on about how much he loved the show. I was like, man, I don't know how you find time to watch it, but we I certainly do appreciate it. Anyway, so we ended up having like a really really nice chat about the show and. Uh, and I've heard actually since then from someone else around the way that uh, that they've also heard that he's a he's a big fan of the show. So that you know that makes it all worth it. Yeah, uh, that's but that's it's really cool to know that you know the the president of the United States 
Get Cinemax. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he gets Cinemax. Yeah. So yeah, so that that was awesome. Where do you think Opal and and Algernon are twenty years on? Hmm. Good question. Twenty years on, I would imagine that they are living in Harlem, <laughs> uh, deeply involved in the Harlem Renaissance. I would imagine that they. This is just me, you know, spitballing here, but I imagine that they maybe host parties with the likes of, of Langston and and, and uh, you know County Cullen. Mm-hmm. I, I would imagine that it's a pretty pretty lively time, and uh, and I would think that the two of them together, you know, w- wouldn't be unlike a uh, present day Barack and Michelle. That's the way I like to think of it. I think they're, you know, they have the potential to be a really beautiful, strong, powerful, loving, supportive couple where's the anger in Algernon is he still you know if you mentioned Langston Hughes and I always use um, what happens to a dream deferred as my touchstone for Algernon um, you know does it you know fester like a sore and then run does it shrivel up like a raisin in the sun does it sag like a heavy load or does it explode and for me it's sags like a heavy load or it explodes for him where's his anger 20 years on I think his anger is is um probably where where mine is which is you know right in the middle of my gut <laughs> um but but you know i think he he like me learns to um to manage it and to make peace with it and not to be consumed by it um but to 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 as i say to put it in a useful direction he's not he's not a, to me he's not a character he's not a guy who's going to who's ever going to quit he doesn't have any quit in him you know he <laughs> kind of reminds me of a, a Saying that the old folks used to say back in Alabama, you know, when when things would get tough, they old folks would say, "Don't worry about the mule, just load the wagon." <laughs> and uh, and I think that's that's a little bit of Algernon. What do you think, Andre, is your favorite scene or favorite moment of the of, of or just part of the experience? Yeah, interestingly, you know, it, I don't think it's a moment that I was heavily involved in. The the very last moment of um this of the mm-hmm. self surgery. And you guys spoke about it a little bit earlier. Um, the moment where where Thackeray says, "That that's it. That's all. This is all we are. That's all we are." But that you know, I just love the way that line put a button on it. It really, for me, unlocked who Thackeray mm-hmm. is, um, what this all has been about for him all this time. It really just opened that up. And then also, you know, the idea of that sort of self-realization that he comes to. I think it's similar to where Algernon is at the end. He comes to a similar place of realizing that he's sort of gotten to the end of what he's capable of or what he thought he could do, right? What he thought he could do on his own. And I think he's left at a place where he, as I said before, has to figure out what the new chapter is. And I think he gets to go forward into that new chapter with the knowledge that, you know, similar thought of this is all we are. I'm not just my degrees and my my skill, my capability, that maybe there's something in me that is essentially me that can carry me forward. So I guess I'll ask everyone else in the room the question: What's the, what's the moment that will be indelible for you, uh, Michaels and Garano and Begler? For me, honestly, I love the very last scene, and it's funny because it's the last scene of the the season. But when I think of this season, I, I think of that scene. How are you feeling? Not so I can sleep. I could give you something. I don't want to sleep. I'm having bad dreams. Really? Tell me about them. There's just something about 
there's just something about that, and I we're talking about it, but there's the show to me is about progression, and it's about um, circumstances and. It is about hope. I yeah. mean, with all the with all the darkness, I think in the end that's what it says to me, that there is hope. I mean, as 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 many steps we take forward, we take a lot back, but we're still trying to st- take those steps forward. And and to me, ending where we do is, and then I think what you're saying, it's just it it's it speaks to that, in in in, in very loudly. Yeah, for me, I have some touchstones, the Cleary Harriet stories in season one, especially. Mm-hmm. The conversations they have, uh, the graveside scene where the girl tried to perform an abortion on herself, mm-hmm. and Andre's moment in the, in I guess the episode fourth episode where you and Eric are doing the surgery with Thackeray uh, for the aneurysm, and he gets you halfway through the surgery and then won't give you anything more, and that could have been so phony. And Andre's face just told us, your eyes are so there's such an intelligence. That it never feels it never feels pat or, or 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 phony because it 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 comes from this place of such deep intelligence. I'll just say all of episode seven from season one, it's just one. It's, that's my favorite thing. That's mm-hmm. what I I really feel very proud of. As we wrap up the season, wrap up all of this, I think it's my my general feeling is just gratitude. You know how lucky we are to get to do this show, and how lucky we are to have all you people who listen and love it so much, and you know allow us to do the show. Andre, thank you so much for being with us and talking so open and honestly. I'm I'm sure all the fans are going to really appreciate that as well. Oh, thank you guys for having me. It's a it's been a pleasure. Our podcast was produced by Barry Finkel with production help from Emily Rubin. And I'd like to take a moment to thank Barry and Emily for making this process so much fun. You made us amateurs sound like NPR nerds, and I mean that as total high praise. If you like what you've heard, leave us a comment on iTunes or SoundCloud. Check out the show's pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr at at the Nick, where you'll find all sorts of fun stuff. And with that, I'm Michael Begler. And I'm Jack Amiel. I'm Michael Angarano. And I think Thackeray put it best in his final words, this is all we are. Thanks for listening.